Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. As of January 1st, 2022, there were 2,036 inmates on death row in the United States. Of those, only 50 are women. Since 1976, when the Supreme Court lifted the moratorium on capital punishment, 17 women have been executed. However, in California, due to legal maneuvers, the last woman executed was Elizabeth Duncan 60 years ago. In 1992, Maureen McDermott was the lone woman on death row in California. She told the Los Angeles Times, What kind of life is this? Waking up every morning to a cement wall is an unbearable future. I sometimes think the gas chamber is better than staring at these walls for the rest of my life. Well, it's been 32 years, and Maureen is still staring at those cement walls. Another woman on death row in California is Celeste Carrington. She has been waiting for her impending end on this earth for 28 years. Celeste grew up in a low-income housing project in Philadelphia in the 1960s. Court records reveal that as the older sibling, she was often left in charge of her younger brothers and sisters. Occasionally, the children were locked out of their home and asked neighbors for food. Celeste and her siblings suffered from parental abuse and neglect. Celeste's mother was a violent woman, and her father abused her. Celeste left home and headed as far away as she possibly could. Leaving the East Coast behind, she traveled west 3,000 miles until she landed in California next to the Pacific Ocean. There she managed to carve out a life for herself and in 1983 attended community college. She competed in track and field, in javelin, discus, and shot put. She was athletic, a cheerful woman who was active in her neighborhood. By 1991, 30-year-old Celeste was working as a janitor and living with her partner Jackie and three of her nine children in their apartment in East Palo Alto, a half-hour drive south of San Francisco. Celeste supported Jackie and her children and worked for a cleaning company that had contracts with many businesses around town. Things didn't work out with her employer. In December, Celeste was fired for stealing checks. 
She turned in her set of master keys, used to access the businesses, but unknown to them, she had made copies. Unable to support Jackie and her children, Celeste sunk into a deep depression. She became withdrawn and isolated herself in their apartment and no longer participated in neighborhood activities. Court records indicated that on January 7, 1992, Celeste used a copy of a master key and let herself in to her old employer's office in Los Altos. There, she stole a blank check. A few days later, she asked her friend, Christopher Maladineo, if he would cash a check for her because she didn't have proper identification. She made out the check to Christopher for $2,000 and he attempted to cash it, but was unsuccessful. Celeste was under extreme pressure and came up with a plan to rob one of the businesses where she had worked. In her job as a cleaner at a car dealership in Redwood City, she recalled that the back entrance was often unlocked. On January 17th, she grabbed a pair of gloves and a crowbar. After everyone had left for the day, she snuck in the back entrance, then used the crowbar to force open several of the interior doors. She rifled through the offices and stole a 357 Magnum revolver and five bullets. Nine days later, she set out to rob again. She used a key that she'd copied and borrowed a car from her neighbor, armed herself with the loaded 357 revolver, and drove to San Carlos. There at a building on Industrial Road, she let herself in. Without realizing it, she set off the security alarm. The new janitor, Victor Esparza, was cleaning when he saw Celeste in an office cubicle. She told him that she worked in the building and accidentally set off the alarm. Victor took out his wallet to find the building manager's phone number and handed it to Celeste and asked her to call the manager. Instead, Celeste whipped out the 357 and ordered Victor to his knees and snatched his wallet. When she discovered he only had 50 bucks, she plucked out his bank card and demanded his PIN number. He wrote it down for her. As Celeste was about to walk away from the cubicle, she paused, turned around, and six inches away from him, she pointed the 357. Victor looked up and raised his arms, but they couldn't stop the bullet that penetrated his forehead. Blood ran down his body, soaking his clothes and pooling on the carpet. Victor was executed at the age of 34. Celeste was excited and felt empowered. 
Later, she tried to use Victor's bank card to withdraw money, but the PIN number he'd given her was wrong. Celeste laid low for a while, then six and a half weeks later, she struck again. It was March 11th. She packed a pair of gloves, a screwdriver, a stolen key, and the 357 revolver, and got a ride from her neighbor to an office building on California Street in Palo Alto. When she arrived there, there were two cars in the parking lot, and she could see two janitors working inside. She waited for them to leave, then tried her key in the door. It wouldn't open. She tried it again. It still didn't work. So she used a screwdriver to pry open the door, then slithered in and out of the offices, looking for cash. Then she heard a door open, and Carolyn Gleason walked in and went to an office. Celeste watched Carolyn, but did not leave. Instead, she met up with her in the coffee room. Celeste pulled out the 357 and caught Carolyn by surprise. Carolyn dropped to her knees and begged Celeste to put the revolver down. Celeste was nervous. Inches away, she pointed the 357 at Carolyn's head. Carolyn raised her hands and covered her face. Celeste pulled the trigger. The bullet struck her in the head and Carolyn slumped to the floor, dead at 36. Celeste rifled through Carolyn's desk and found $400, which she took along with her keys. Outside in the parking lot, she tried the keys in a car door until she found one that opened. On the seat, she found Carolyn's purse. She opened it to find her wallet and bank card, along with her PIN number. Celeste drove Carolyn's car to a nearby bank and tried to withdraw money. It didn't work. So she tried again. Still, it didn't work. So she drove to a 7-Eleven and tried it a third time. She was able to withdraw $200. She drove to a second bank and got another $100. Celeste then dumped Carolyn's car in a hospital parking lot and took a taxi home. She waited five days to pull off her next robbery. Using a copy of a key, she went to a medical office building on Brewster Street in nearby Redwood City. Packing the 357 revolver, she arrived at 5.30 p.m. and pulled out the key. But it turned out the door wasn't locked and she walked right in. Then she tried her key on the inside office doors, but it didn't open any. Celeste decided to wait it out. She hid in a closet for a few hours until just before 10 p.m., when she spotted Dr. Alan Marks 
leaving his office. Three feet from him, she pulled out the 357, but the doctor didn't respond the way Victor and Carolyn had. He didn't drop to his knees. Instead, he fought with all the strength he had. He lunged for the revolver and struggled to take it away from her. Celeste pulled the trigger. It misfired. She pulled the trigger again and hit him in the shoulder. Then she pulled it a third time and hit him in the right arm. He managed to push Celeste out of his office, locked the door, and called 911. Celeste stole prescription drugs and fled the building. Dr. Alan Marks was rushed into surgery and survived. Meanwhile, that same day, police arrested Christopher for the $2,000 forged check he tried to cash a few months earlier. He quickly told them that Celeste had given him the check. So officers had Christopher phone Celeste, and she admitted the check was stolen. Three days later, police spoke with Celeste's previous employer about the stolen check. Because there was no forced entry, they thought it was possible Celeste had made a copy of the master key and let herself in. On March 20th, law enforcement from four police jurisdictions met. Detectives from Redwood City, Palo Alto, Los Altos, and San Carlos joined forces to discuss the events and coordinate the crimes they believed Celeste had committed. That afternoon, a search warrant was issued for Celeste's apartment. Los Altos police officers were authorized to search for keys and blank checks stolen from her previous employer. They were accompanied by officers from Palo Alto who were investigating Carolyn's murder and were there to ensure that the first officers did not interfere with any possible evidence that could be related to her murder. The Palo Alto police observed evidence in plain view, they spotted a black pager with a phone number on a sticker. That phone number belonged to Carolyn. They also noticed a key labeled with the address of Carolyn's office. Both police departments exited the apartment without collecting any evidence. They waited for the Palo Alto officers to obtain a warrant for evidence related to Carolyn's murder. At 5.15 p.m., Celeste was arrested at her home and taken to the Redwood City Police Department. Over nine hours, she was interrogated separately by three police departments, the Redwood City, Palo Alto, and San Carlos. During the three interviews, she was confronted with the evidence at her apartment and the video surveillance found at the 7-Eleven store of Celeste using Carolyn's bank card. Faced with the mountain of evidence, Celeste confessed to the murders of Victor and Carolyn and the attempted murder of Dr. Alan Marks. 
Palo Alto detectives returned to Celeste's apartment at 1.38 a.m. with a warrant and seized the pager and the key. They also found Carolyn's purse and petty cash box and seized a 357 revolver and four spent bullet casings. At 4 a.m., Los Altos detectives returned looking for keys and stolen checks, but did not locate them. At 7 a.m., it was a Redwood City detective's turn. Their search warrant authorized them to seek evidence related to Victor's murder and the attempted murder of Dr. Alan Marks. Detectives found evidence related to the doctor, including stolen keys and medical supplies. The San Francisco Examiner reported that Celeste pled innocent on all charges and was held in the county jail without bail. District Attorney James Fox stated his office would seek the death penalty. Celeste went to trial in June 1994, two and a half years after her murder spree. It took the jury only one day of deliberation to find her guilty on 14 counts, including murder, attempted murder, robbery, and burglary. The Santa Maria Times reported that the jury found special circumstances and decided both murders had been premeditated first degree. Celeste was given the death penalty. 23 women in California reside on death row and all reside at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Celeste is among notable company. Fellow inmates include Cynthia Kaufman, who has been incarcerated for 30 years. Another is Kristen Rosen, who has been there 20 years, sentenced to death when she was only 26, and was featured in our 48th episode titled An Extra Needle Prick. The women on death row are isolated from the general population while they count down their remaining days to the inevitable. Never knowing when their time will end is an added punishment they must endure for the choices they made that ended in murder. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 Podcast with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of William and Patricia Witcherly. Susan felt her parents cheated her out of money that was rightfully hers, and for years her resentment grew. Then her parents disappeared, and no one noticed, for 15 years. That is until they were found buried in the garden. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, 
We'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effect and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.